What's going on, guys? My name is Elden Nero, and welcome to episode 134 of The Midnight Hour. This will most likely, barring some kind of miracle, be the last episode of 2020. Um, I know we've already done a farewell 2020 podcast, but I want one to talk about, like, albums and stuff. I was gonna say, like, movies and TV shows and albums, but realistically... It was not a big year for movie releases for obvious reasons. Um, TV shows, I feel so far behind the rest of the world when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, but music is kind of unique in the entertainment world in that it was a very good year for music, I think. Um, some people disagree. I guess like a lot of huge artists uh, maybe chose not to release albums in 2020. Um, I'm not even sure if that's true, actually. Um, but I saw, like, most companies or most, um, you know, magazines, websites and stuff have already done their top albums of the year. Uh, they had them done by November, or by December, um, sort of late November. And I wanted to just leave it a little bit later. I think last year I actually did this album, or this album, I'm pretty sure last year I did this podcast like the 30th of December or something like that. Um, so I like to leave it as late as possible because you never know when a surprise release might come along and uh, really change what you were going to talk about. A good example of that is Taylor Swift releasing Evermore um, long after the likes of uh, Stereo Gum and um, whoever else had all done their albums of the year. I think like I saw like NPR... Um, Who's the other company that I can't think of right now who did a top? Is it like Rolling Stone um, had released theirs, Pitchfork had released theirs, and uh, none of them included Evermore because they did their album of the year lists a bit too early. <laughs> and I don't really know why they chose to do that. Um, I guess it's a big source of clicks at this time of year. Um, and I suppose if you look at the chart of albums that were coming out between then and the end of the year... Um, it was unlikely that anything else was going to find its way into the list. But um, anyhow, today I will discuss mine. I haven't really figured out the order. I, I know exactly what albums I want to talk about, and I don't know how important order actually is to me. I I'm not going to be talking about them in the context of uh, this one here is the third best album of the year, and this one is second because I preferred it ever so slightly. Um, and I'm not going to give them ratings out of 10 either. I feel like I'm just going to talk about what I like, explain why I like it, and we can go from there. But I would like to know if anyone out there in comment land still watches this on YouTube and doesn't have YouTube Premium or doesn't strip the audio um, out into a file of its own, isn't listening on iTunes or Spotify or any of those things, um, if you wouldn't mind leaving a comment and telling me what your um, things of the year were, like your albums of the year, your podcasts, um, the things that you listened to to get you through this uh, strange and isolating kind of a year. Um, I want to really quick uh, just say a huge thank you to all of you. Uh, for your support during this year. Um, those of you on YouTube may not be entirely aware of this, but I have actually been live streaming like nearly every single night since very late July, early August. 
Um, it's been a real blast and it's been a real, um, it's been a real counter to the, the like isolation and the, you know, just complete, um, the feeling of like being alone that everybody else has during lockdown. It's like super fucking cool. Um, we have like a discord server set up. We have like regulars in the chat. I play a few different games and it's been like a real, I don't, I hate the term game changer, but like it has been something else in my life and it's like really, really cool. So thanks to all of you, you know who you are, too many people to name. Um, but yeah, you've really like made this uh, a pretty awesome year for me, I have to say. Um, even just in terms of like uh, my like dwindling level of influence in this kind of sphere. Um, I never really know how many people actually like me or listen to me because the numbers are skewed across all of the different uh, podcast platforms and stuff like that. And podcasting in general is such a non-interactive kind of um, a thing, but uh, but Twitch isn't and Discord isn't and stuff like that. So it's been, I don't know, it's just been really, really great. And I want to say like sincerely a thanks to everybody, I'll leave my Twitch link in the description and the Discord link in the description. If anyone feels like joining, um, please do. We are a very friendly bunch. And um, I basically give away <laughs> like the same content that you would get in a podcast, except in, in a live stream. And there's lots of back and forth and interaction. And the chat is always um, like extremely active and i just really 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 appreciate that because in a sense it's kind of all that i've ever wanted so um yeah i said that i would talk about uh the mandalorian which may be the only tv show that i've watched this year that actually came out this year i'm pretty sure that that's true um but i really enjoyed it i'm on season two i just have the final episode of the season to go and then i'm done but uh, it's been really, really good. Um, the thing that I really like about The Mandalorian is the um, the way that it's like a different planet every time, a different kind of set of characters um, and like a different like avenue into their lives and what lives, lives might be on some desolate rock somewhere in the Star Wars universe. And that's really cool. Um, Story-wise, I feel like the story in The Mandalorian actually kind of plays second fiddle to the reasons why I enjoy it. Like, I enjoy it because it reminds me of Firefly. It's got that, like, um, space for a sort of Western feel to it, which is really cool. And, um, yeah, it's just an awesome show. It's, it's well acted. It's well written. It looks great. Um, it looks like the universe is lived in. And it's something you can watch even if you're not a Star Wars fan. And I think that that's a really cool thing. So, um, yeah, I'm saving the last episode currently, and I'll probably watch it on Christmas Day uh, or something like that. So we've got that to look forward to. Um, I can't think of anything else that I really watched this year. I want to watch the Mulan movie because I never got into Pixar or Disney movies really when I was younger. Um, never saw any of the Disney classics or anything like that, but I did see Mulan in the cinema when I was about nine years old and I, I really liked it. I remember at the time, Eddie Murphy was actually one of my favorite actors because I liked uh, Coming to America and The Golden Child and 48 Hours and another 48 Hours and those kinds of movies. Um, and so I watched Mulan just because of him. 
um, I might have been the only nine-year-old kid drawn to the cartoon Dragon movie because Eddie Murphy was in it. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> it was uh, always like a great movie for me. And um, yeah, so I want to watch the remake, but then I'm also torn by the, you know, like political or the, you know, the the consequences of supporting a movie that, you know, Okay, I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I, I can't think of anything else that I really properly got into. I'm sure when I'm finished recording here, I will think of some movie that I watched and loved that came out during I lockdown. I only saw it once. Um, I saw Tenet I really in the feel cinema, the need to actually. see it again. I could probably because... talk about Tenet for a moment. It's a, it's a very difficult movie to, to properly grasp. Like, I'm not like a big movie fan. Um, I watch, like... <laughs> you know, a few different movies every week. And Christopher Nolan is really out there as a director. And, and like, he always has been. He's always got these, like, really grand ideas that only a man capable of securing a budget uh, the size of the ones that he gets could actually ever execute. And Tenet does that really well. But I... I feel like his movies happen at such a fast pace that it can sometimes be hard to absorb uh, the finer details of the plot because they're awash in these um, beautiful set pieces and uh, and stuff like that. Um, and Tenet is, is like really no different to that. Tenet is a really tough one to follow along with because everything else that's happening on the screen is so busy. Um, but I did really enjoy it. I liked the soundtrack to it. I thought that it was well acted. Um, I, I just love the intensity that you get from a Chris Nolan movie. He really does have a like unique sort of uh, style. Um, the only thing is, there are things about Nolan movies that are... So they're like trademarks or calling cards of his, but they're not necessarily good. And one of them is that oftentimes... The dialogue that happens on screen is purely um, exposition, which is to say that the characters are only talking to each other because they're actually talking to the audience. And Tenet is the most um, like expositional movie that Nolan has ever made. And then the other thing about Nolan movies is that the sound mixing is not really that great i'm not a big sound nerd which is a funny thing to say for a man who's about to talk about albums for about an hour but it's noticeable to to me that the sound mixing isn't good in these movies i almost feel like they're made for people who have blown their eardrums out at rock music concerts um and tenet it has the worst sound mixing out of any nolan movie i i thought I think it was Interstellar was like nominated for an Oscar for its sound mixing. Um, and it's hard for me to recall right now if that was deserved or not. But I know that The Dark Knight Rises has bad sound mixing. And I know that um, like particularly like whenever Bane speaks, I'm pretty sure they had to go back and redo all of Bane's lines um, or not his lines, but they had to like edit his voice for the for the DVD release because it, it was so inaudible in cinemas. Um, and like Inception doesn't have the greatest sound mixing ever. Um, 
I'm trying to think of uh, of the other ones. I'm not really able to, but but the sound mixing in Tenet is very, very, very bad. It's really fucking hard to know what the characters are saying half the time. And I feel like that probably won't be the case on the, the DVD release. Or I, I keep calling it a DVD release because I'm old school, but you know what I mean, the, the non-theatrical release. But it was hard to follow along with in the cinema, which is crazy because you're sitting in a chair being drowned by noise um and so not being able to make out what characters are saying is actually a you know a bit of a flaw <laughs> but i still enjoyed the movie um i still thought that it was great and well acted and all of those things it's also the funniest uh chris nolan movie particularly the dialogue with michael kane um but the main character has some some great quips that you don't usually get from nolan movies they're typically very very serious movies um but yeah, it was it was definitely a trip. It's definitely one that I want to see again. Um, trying to think, was there anything else? I don't think there was another release that I actually watched from twenty twenty. I guess I saw like I saw some movies on Netflix um, that came out in twenty twenty, just like Netflix releases, and I enjoyed them. But I actually unfortunately cannot remember their names. Um, but they weren't the types of movies that I would talk about on a podcast anyway. Um, I watched that movie that was based on the movie or based on the book, uh, sort of like a rock star. I forget the name of that. I'm pretty sure that was a 2020 release. Um, All together now, I think that's what that was called. Uh, like I enjoyed that. I, I enjoy the the cheesier like Netflix sort of uh, feelsy movies, like uh, like someone great and um, and those types of films. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess we'll just move straight on to talking about music. Um, Unless there was something else I can think of. I, I basically, I stopped listening to podcasts almost entirely in 2020, which was a strange thing for me. But I suppose the reality is like, I'm not commuting anymore, so I don't need to listen to podcasts. Um, so yeah, let's look at the album. So before I get into the top 10, which is the reason why we're all here, I'm not even sure if it is a top 10. It might actually be a top nine. Um, but... I will just talk about some albums that came out that I liked or didn't like or whatever. Um, so one of the first releases that I was looking forward to in 2020 was Circles, the Mac Miller album, um, the first posthumous release and the follow-up to 2018's Swimming. Um, I thought Circles was a really lovely album. Um, it was just as sad and produced just as many feels as you would expect um given the context and given what a triumph swimming was uh for mac miller and i i really enjoyed it i would i would really recommend it for people um but i would also say if i were being like super critical and uh completely like non-emotionally invested in the project it it feels like an album but it doesn't feel finished and i think that i think that that's a really harsh criticism um, but there are just moments in it where you feel like Mac Miller probably had um, a better, uh, not better, but a, a different vision for how the track was going to go. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, it's it's a lovely little uh, collection of songs and it should give you like exactly what you're looking for from it. But yeah, it doesn't feel entirely finished to me. Um. Another release was this Andy Schoff or Andy Schoff. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. 
but um, he had this album called The Neon Skyline, which was extremely popular this year. And it's kind of a like a concept record in a very singer-songwritery kind of a format about a guy who goes to this pub called The Neon Skyline. And, like he meets up with his ex and like a bunch of different things happen with him over the course of the night. Um, and it's a it's a pretty cool album. I have to be honest. I wouldn't listen to it over and over. Um, I wouldn't be able to like give it that kind of attention because his voice is not my style of uh, of like voice. It's not it's not the kind of voice that I like to listen to too much. I, I thought that the album was really nice. I thought that the songs were good, um, but it's not the type of thing that I would like get you know fully immersed in. Um, and it's because his voice sounds too close to Paul Simon for me, and I fucking cannot stand Paul Simon. So, uh, yeah, that's what's going on there. So, <laughs> anyways, um, it was it was a very popular album, very beloved album um, from 2020, and I did really like it. I just didn't love it. And then there was Always Tomorrow, the uh, most recent release from Best Coast. Uh, this was exactly what you would expect a best coast album to sound like i i think they're a super cool band and i love all of their stuff but you just don't give me like the they're they're not like a top tier band for me um even though i do really like them i find them great to put on in moments when i just want to chill or i just want to like forget about the day that i had or, or whatever um they're a great band for that and always tomorrow was a, a really nice record so i would i would recommend that people listen to it um the weekend released an album one of his better albums in recent years too it was obviously um guided by the lead single blinding lights which was just a real fucking triumph i think for the weekend it's such a good song um it really does not have like any flaws it, it's a real like perfect combination of like i don't know uh, hip-hop and synth and it just it sounds like it could have been made at any stage in the last 50 years and you wouldn't be surprised it's one of those songs that when it first hits it feels familiar to you and it feels like a song that has always existed and i always am so amazed that artists are able to translate those kinds of sounds like i i, I don't know how to explain it it's just a phenomenal song and um the album is really good too the weekend is really coming into his own here. Like he's really uh, like tapping into the exact parts of himself that he wants to present to the world, and it's really interesting. Like he wants to be seen as kind of a bad guy, and he is really uncomfortable with the idea of being like a hero or a role model or any of those things. And I think that that's really really interesting. Um, whenever you have somebody who is like deliberately presenting themselves as a bad or flawed individual. I don't know what it is, but there's just something extremely interesting about that. So um, yeah, After Hours is an awesome album. It really does do a lot to kind of tell his story and his problems uh, with addiction, his problems with self-loathing uh, and, and all of those things. And, and I would really recommend it. Um, Nine Inch Nails released a couple of new albums uh, from the Ghosts catalog that they have. Um, this is going all the way back to, I believe, 2008 was when Ghosts 1 to 4 were released. And they're essentially this huge collection of instrumental tracks made by Trent Reznor. And I'm always, like, extremely 
blown away by how many original kind of just beats and soundscapes that Trent Reznor has been able to conjure up over the years. Like he's been doing this since the eighties and even now it feels like artistically he's coming into like an entirely new act of, um, of his creativity. Um, he's out there scoring movie soundtracks now and, and himself and Atticus Ross have kind of, um, built themselves up as two of the most um like sought after artists for movie producers right now and it's just amazing to me because you can listen to the ghosts uh tracks like all of these instrumentals and you can find different you can find little hints of moments of uh of other nine inch nails stuff or their trent reznor stuff in there but overall it still sounds completely raw and completely original and and um, these releases, I think it's Ghosts 5 and 6, is it? V and VI? Um, they, they sound completely different to 1 to 4, but they they definitely, um, like, you know, stand up in their own right, and they sound like two perfectly fitting soundtracks to the year 2020, in my opinion. Um, just as a side note, it was... The beat for Old Town Road by Lil Nas X was pulled from one of the instrumental tracks on one of the original Ghosts releases from Nine Inch Nails. So that will like give you an idea of what kinds of sounds are floating around in those releases. And um, yeah, if you're interested in instrumental music or if you're like a music theory like student or whatever, I, I would highly recommend checking these out because there's a lot in there and... Um, most of it is really, really good. So, yeah, it, it it is hard, though, to be like, if if you're just a casual music fan, I, I think it's going to be pretty hard for you to be like, I'm going to dedicate one hour and 20 minutes of my day listening to this gloomy, dark, brooding, apocalyptic soundtrack and, uh, and have that follow you throughout your day. So it, it can be a tough sell. Um, another release that I enjoyed this year was Local Honey by Brian Fallon. I have to be honest. And I feel really bad, but I just didn't get into this in the way I did previous Brian Fallon releases. Um, it's definitely missing the um, the more like high tempo rock and roll feel to it. But that's not why I didn't listen to it. I, I didn't really give this album a whole lot of time or attention because it's mainly a love album. Um, Honey is a great name to have in the title because it is quite a sweet album. And at the time that it was released, I was dealing with the fallout of like a, a breakup and I just wasn't in the fucking humor to listen to a guy talk about how much he loves his girlfriend or his wife. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, just it happened that I just didn't really get to this one, but it is a lovely album nonetheless. Um, I would also like if people would listen to Love is an Art by Vanessa Carlton, yes, the same lady who sang 500 Miles, or no, 1,000 Miles, 500 Miles with the Proclaimers, completely different song. But um, yeah, Listen to Love is an Art. It's really good. I actually, I listened to it um, because there's a, a guy, like a friend of mine um, from the internet who is a huge Vanessa Carlton fan, um, but also like his, uh, his music taste is so good that I would... You know, I would take his advice on anything uh, to listen to. And 
yeah, I gave this album a listen and I was really blown away by how good it was. And I would highly recommend that everyone listens to it. Um, from that, I actually listened to, I think, all of her other album, or at least three of her other albums, and realized that I had kind of just been sleeping on her because, uh, you know, A Thousand Miles is a, it's a huge pop song. It's a banger, don't get me wrong. I actually love the song, but it felt like a one-hit wonder. Even though I always knew the song White Houses by her was really good. But anyway... Love is an Art is a really good album. Um, real quick as well, Phoebe Bridgers was an artist that I discovered in 2020 because on the episode of the podcast with John, I think it was called Surviving the Lockdown or something like that, where he and I spoke about different things that we had been listening to, watching or whatever um, to get through lockdown. And somebody commented saying that they had been listening to Phoebe Bridgers' first album and I gave it a listen, and it was awesome. And then this album, Punisher, came out um, later on in the year, and it is also really, really good. It feels like she's um, just an extremely talented musician, and um, I feel like we're just going to get some amazing releases from her over the coming years, so that's really cool. Um, but yeah, Punisher... I. I find it really hard to classify a lot of uh, different music styles. Like, I don't know what I would describe this type of music as. I guess on the face of it, you can say, like, it's indie because American indie music is a lot different than British indie music. Um, you could also say it's like, you know, there are like layers of folk and, and like, I don't know, contemporary. Like, it, it just, it's a good album. Just fucking listen to it, okay? Um, Matt. I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. The guy from The National. How do you pronounce his name? Berninger? Is it like Berninger? Berninger? I don't know. But he released a solo album called Serpentine Prison. And it's it's quite good. It's definitely worth your time, especially if you're a fan of The National. I didn't... It didn't, like, hit me as hard as a National record would. Um, but I still really enjoyed it. I've only given it one listen, though. So that's why I'm not talking about it more in depth. Um... There are two albums that really disappointed me this year, and I really hate to say it, but the first one is Notes on a Conditional Form by the 1975. Um, I've never really been big into this band. I saw them live at a festival uh, a good few years back, like probably 2014 or so, um, and I just, I never got into them. I, I didn't never thought that Chocolate was a good song. I didn't like this city. I didn't like that weird um, sort of like urban vibe they slipped into for their second album. <clears throat> I never really like, like believed in them all that much as a band, but they did release an album called A Brief Inquiry Into Online Relationships. It was really fucking good. Um, I was so surprised by how good it was and it was such an honest and intricate look at our sort of online world um, and how everyone tries to make sense of everything with this massive amount of information that we're given and the anxiety that, it, that filters into your normal life as a result of that. Um, and just like artistically, the album was all over the place but also pieced together so well that you never got the impression that they were out of their depth creatively. It was really, really good. Honestly, one of the one of the stronger releases of that decade. Um, and Notes on a Conditional Form was hugely hyped, hugely anticipated. 
Um, pretty much like most critics had pegged it as guaranteed to be equal to or even greater than a brief inquiry. And honestly, I just cannot fucking believe how annoying I find this album. Don't get me wrong, there are flashes of brilliance on here. Um, there are a few like really, really good songs, but it just, it's all over the fucking place and it's so long and they peer into so many different styles of music that i don't know it's gotten very positive reviews elsewhere i know that this is like not a uh consensus representative view that i have this record just fucking drove me to near insanity trying to get into it it is just it opens up with, like every album they have opens up with a track called The 1975 and it's always the same lyrics as far as I understand it. They just have a different tone and atmosphere depending on the album that that, uh, that follows it. And that's fine. But on this one, it's like Greta Thunberg, I hope that's how you pronounce her name, um, speaking about climate change. And like, that's fine. I Like I applaud the message. It's It's great to put like, um pieces of uh of like progressive symbolism into your albums wherever possible like it's just fucking dialogue lifted out of one of our speeches it feels so fucking lazy to me somehow and it goes on for so long that it doesn't even feel good to listen to like well, i don't know how to explain it i feel like such a like a sour punt for saying for harping on about this kind of a point but it's like it's like they're trying to say something, but they just don't have the fucking words to say it. I think one of the most um one of the most relatable aspects of a brief inquiry, the album before this one, was that it was so honest and so sincere that you could feel Matt Healy saying, I don't know how to say this feeling that I have. And um in notes on a conditional form. It's like he doesn't feel that kind of pressure anymore uh, to try and explain himself. He's just like, okay, here's a five-minute fucking soundboard of of this girl talking about climate change. And it's just like, yeah, I don't even know. Um, there's another part in this album where he's talking about this really pretentious guy and he gives like a piece of dialogue as to what the guy said and then he's like who fucking talks like that and it's like you know he just put the dialogue in because he wrote it and he wanted it to be in the song like i don't know it, it's just this this album just did not fucking flow well enough for me I, I really will never listen to it again it was so disappointing compared to what i thought it was gonna be um, if, if I was, if I were like, you know, gun to your head, say something positive about it, it's confident and it's ballsy. And I really admire the fact that they stepped so far out of their comfort zone to make it. And I think, like, I wish more bands would do that. I've always found the most interesting albums in bands' catalogs to be the ones where they went against the grain a little bit. Like, it, it's long been like a, a hill that I'm willing to die on that Be Here Now by Oasis if it's not a great album, it's a really interesting historical document for like a band being consumed by excess um, and believing their own hype. And I've always really enjoyed Get Hurt by the Gaslight Anthem, even though it's their least popular album and essentially the album that broke them because they were trying to step outside of their comfort zone. And I do really like that and I do really applaud it when bands do that. Um, just for me, this sounded, you know, 
like the aural version of a fucking car crash. I just couldn't be. I guess a car crash sounds like a car crash, so there's no. But it's like, you know what I mean? It's the version of of two cars like burning in a pile at the side of the road. Anyways, <laughs> um, the next album that I found thoroughly disappointing from this year was Recover by The Naked and Famous, who have long been um, a band that I admire. And like, I'd even go so far as to say like that I adore their, their first two albums are so fucking good. And they're so like clever and um, like quirky and sort of, they, they walk the line really well between like glossy um, studio informed, you know, algorithmic pop music and like really quirky, really indie, really clever, really sincere types of records. And I like, I, I recommend them to anyone who's ever like looking for music to listen to, like listen to the first two Naked and Famous albums, their class. Um, their third album, Simple Forms, is not the same ilk as the first two, but it does have some great tracks on it. I really love Fire uh, from that one. I really loved uh, Laid Low. I thought that they were two like amazing singles from the album, but the album as it's as a whole didn't really do a lot for me. And then they took a long hiatus and they used to be a five piece or even I think their live um, outfit was like a six or seven piece. There was a load of them on the stage because they have all of these different um, like synth, like, uh, like everything, like fucking just a, an entire array of different instrumentation uh, used to produce their very like am- ambitious kind of sound. Um, but now it's just the main two. It's um, Alyssa, the 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 lady singer, and then I forget the other guy's name. I think is it Tom? I think the other guy's name is Tom or something like that. And um, but yeah, it's just the two of them, and their sound has really suffered as a result of this. They've gone from being like all of the things that I said before, like like glossy and huge, but also still like um, in some way. Um, loyal to their like indie roots and stuff like that and now they're just a minimalist kind of um like synthy pop band i don't know but this record recover it's like a fucking hour long maybe even longer than that it's like 16 tracks there's a couple of nice songs on it i, I thought that Sunseeker was really nice um there was one or two others i think like death is a pretty good song but Overall, it, there's a whole lot of filler in this thing, and there's barely any other instrumentation. It's just you can really tell that they've stripped the band back, and this is just two people in the studio. And it might be a good first release for like a low budget um, duo trying to find their way, but for a fourth album of a band responsible for tracks like Punching in a Dream uh young blood girls like you um parts like ours like rolling waves all of these like great songs um this is so disappointing and i really wish like i i I did everything that i could to try and get into this album because i love this band they're one of my most played artists like ever uh but this just like it's sad but anyways um, I'll give her like really quick shout out to Charlie XCX and Ariana Grande who released um, How I'm Feeling Now and Positions respectively. Two like albums that I really liked and that everyone else like loved 
um i just didn't like superly or overly get into them you know what i mean like i just didn't absorb them the same way that other people did but they are really good and they are worth your time so check those out um so i'll get into like the albums that i really liked from this year um aesop rock released an album called spirit world field guide and this is so worth your time if you are in any way enamored of hip-hop in general rap in general like just check this album out it's so fucking good um aesop rock has like long been someone that i really enjoy listening to i like not shall pass and labor days and stuff like that um they really what's the word i just really really love those albums and he fell off a little bit i i think his last release was the impossible kid and i didn't really love that um i felt like it dragged a little bit i feel like sometimes aesop rock's biggest problem is that he's an amazing uh rapper from like a technical sense he puts more words into his rap songs than anybody else does his vocabulary is insane he always tries to use words that like people will have to be reaching for their fucking dictionary to figure out um but i feel like one place where his albums go wrong a little bit is that he's not necessarily great at translating the meaning of his songs so it it can be sometimes like really satisfying to rap along in these like these complex rhyming schemes with all of these huge words but you don't always really know what he's talking about and i think that that's important for some people um but spirit world field guide um completely breaks that barrier down like it's fun it's kind of like playful in a way that no other asap rock album is it's really colorful um the beats are really good the lyrics are really good everything flows thematically and it's just overall like one of the most satisfying releases from this year like i really really got into this i really enjoyed it um next up uh there was an album released by purity ring who are like what do you say one of my favorite bands they're definitely like my top 50 favorite bands um but they had like two really good albums uh shrines and another eternity and then they kind of disappear i think another eternity came out in like fucking 2014 i want to say 2015 maybe and then they just disappeared off the face of the fucking earth and i had thought they were gonna go through the naked and famous treatment of basically coming back as extremely low budget um but they released this album Woom, and it's amazing oh i've actually written notes on this one um here are my notes on this album an album five years in the making. Why do people listen to churches when Purity Ring exists? I don't think I need to say anything more than that. Uh, next up, we had Ceremony, uh, the new album from Fantagram. Uh, this band makes very catchy, trippy music that you only need to give one listen to before it's floating around in your head forever. And you'll revisit the album like a few months later and find yourself easily humming along to every track and i think that that's like one of the greatest achievements a band can have is that they just they get into your head don't hate them and you are able to hum along with every track and Fantagram do that really well um and then before i get into the big list of you know albums that i loved the final thing i'm going to talk about here is um x the godless void and other stories 
which is the new album. I believe it's the 10th album by, and you will know us by the trail of dead who, um, they had an album in 2002, I want to say called source codes and tags. Was that 2002? Surely it was earlier than anyway. Um, this is an American indie band, kind of like no other. Um, they have a really interesting fusion of styles and lyrics that mainly contain like philosophical musings and stuff like that. Um, their albums tend to open with a lot of build up and progression. Then they slow down in the middle and then they pick up pace towards the end. And it's like they start out as a prog rock band and then morph into a punk rock band. And they essentially live and die by their ability to perfect that formula, which sounds like kind of a belittling comment, but I'm actually a huge fan of this band. And I really enjoyed this record. I thought that it was a great return to form for them. Uh, the lead single off of it was called, um, what was it called? Don't Look Down. And uh, it's a beautiful, uh, like colorful, just a very, very lovely song. I would, excuse me, I would highly recommend that you check out um, Don't Look Down by And You Will Know Us by The Trailer Dead. And that will give you a fair idea as to what this album sounds like. It's just a really, really lovely song. Um, and they're a band that I really love, but then they have a lot of albums that are just not entirely up to their usual standards, let's say. Um, all right. So this is the top 10 list. Okay. These are in no particular order. I don't really know how to put them in some kind of an order. Like, I just don't know. I can't be the type of person who's like, oh, I prefer this album to this album. And this one's slightly better than this. These are all of the albums that I loved from this year. Okay. So the first one that I'm going to start off with is High Off Life by Future. And like most Future uh, releases, I really don't have a lot to say about the, uh, the, the content here. He has been doing this since like 2012, releasing albums that range in everything from like talking about how numb he is from Cody News, talking about how much he hates himself, talking about how much he loves himself, talking about how great he is and talking about how much of a piece of shit he is. And this kind of just does all of those things as well. It's like 20 tracks or something. It's got Life Is Good, um, the the really popular song with Drake on it. Um, Future can continue to feed me this kind of album over and over and over. I'm sure that I said last year in my in my album review podcast that um, Future is for rap fans, like what Motorhead or ACDC are for metal fans. Like, it's just, it's music that you know you're going to like. It doesn't shift dramatically. It doesn't take wild steps into unknown territory. It's just good music. And you like it, so you listen to it. And that's pretty much all I can say about this album. Um, Future is a really, really interesting figure in hip-hop. He's not like anybody else. He's the guy who invented the entire um, like landfill of SoundCloud rappers talking about how sad they are. All of that happened because of Future. Um, he really paved the way for people like Post Malone and um, all of those types of guys. So he deserves like immense respect. Um, and if nothing else, his 2015 run of releases was just fucking insane. And I would even say maybe 15 into 16, because I think at the start of 2016, he released um, two albums back to back on the same day. And he just has never released thing that I didn't like and um I don't know many other artists that I can really say that about who have the same 
you know, quantity of output that Future has. So I don't know if you're not listening to them. I don't know why you really should. There's so much to uh, to explore with him. And High Off Life is just another um, like notch in the headboard of. Is that, a, is that even a saying? The notches that create your headboard. What's that from? That's from that Poison in the Well album. Uh, it's another string to his bow. Another fetter to his bow. But anyway, it's a good album and you should check it out. So next up on the list, we have got another rap album. This time it's from a group called Run The Jewels and they have released RTJ4 which they actually released a few days ahead of schedule. I think it was supposed to come out on a Friday, and they just released it on the Tuesday or something like that. Um, it's crazy how good this album actually is, because I'm a big fan of Run The Jewels. I loved uh, RTJ 1 and 2. I love every piece of uh, of like collaborative music they've made with Zach De La Rocha. Um, I think it's like a really strong compliment to run the jewels um, and a really strong like example of how good of a band they are that Zach De La Rocha would rather make multiple collaborative tracks with run the jewels and also his own solo stuff with LP um, as the producer, than he would go back to be in rage against the machine. I know rage against the machine uh, announced a huge comeback tour last year and all of that stuff, but in terms of him actually creating music, he seems to rather do a run, run the jewels. And I think that that's such a huge compliment to them because he's an iconic figure in music, uh, particularly in like the rap rock sort of field. And um, yeah, it just, it must feel great to be run the jewels and be like, wow, Zach De La Rocha prefers us to his own band. <laughs> But uh, yeah, RTJ3 was, I, I felt like it was kind of bloated a little bit. Um, I felt like they're, I don't want to say formula because they don't really have a formula. Like they're a very odd band. They're very out there uh, in terms of like the soundscapes that are cast and, and like um, even just the way Killer Mike and LP bounce off each other is strange. Um it's not typical. It's not a typical, um, like collab that you see in hip hop music. And RTJ one and two, like to me, were groundbreaking. I thought that they were just two excellent records. Um, the third one though was just missing something. It felt like they were jaded while they were making it. Um, and it has some great tracks on it. Don't get me wrong. It also has a few tracks that helped to steer the direction towards RTJ four. Um. But RTJ4 is just all killer, no filler. Like, this is such a strong album. There is, the only thing that I don't like on it is the beat in, um, or maybe the chorus in the, the second track, Ooh La La. I just, it's just too much for me. But that being said, uh, a lot of people say that about Oh My Darling Don't Cry from RTJ2. Uh, sometimes LP's beats and, the, and his, like, enunciation tend to be a bit too, like, on the nose for people. But I thought that RTJ4 was excellent. I love how they leaned into the more weird aspects of their music. Um, like, there's just some strange beats in there. There's some, like, weird kind of, like, synthwave or, like, retrowave kind of influence 
uh, in the beats. And then there's this like narrative, this Yankee and the Brave narrative that kind of filters through a few of the tracks. Um, and there's just a very strong like 80s B-movie vibe to this album. And there kind of always has been. Like there is a track um, on an older RTJ release where Killer Mike says that he feels like Michael Wincott in Strange Days. Which, like, how many rappers are out there dropping that as a cultural reference point for people? Like, it's so weird. Um, but that seems to be one of the things that LP and Killer Mike bond over. And uh, I really, like, I really respect it. I really love that kind of influence. Like, I grew up on a lot of 80s B-movies, um, particularly sci-fi movies. And you can hear that bleed through um into run the jewels tracks uh, and you like ever since the first album that's been there so it, it's just really really cool um so yeah this album to me felt like a return to form it felt like a like a vindication almost for anyone saying that they had fallen off after rtj3 um it also felt like just as a piece of social commentary like it was very much needed i think it's particularly poignant that this album was released in the wake of George Floyd's death. And there's a track on here that talks about being suffocated to death by a police officer. Um, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of cultural commentary that you can expect from LP and Killer Mike. And the, the other thing that I really love is that they don't have the same sort of like tired, like bland SJW rhetoric that you would find in like, let's say a band like the 1975, um, or that kind of thing, like Killer Mike, he, like he's a public speaker. He has strong opinions on these things. Like he's a guy who works with like local communities. Like he does all that he can. Um, it's just, it's not just like fucking social commentary because he says the right things to the right people. Like it's social commentary because this is a guy who's so clued in and so wired. Uh, he knows exactly what he's saying and why he's saying it. And it just sounds so true and powerful and they really do deserve a lot of credit for that i think like like how do i put it just the amount of different things that go into why run the jewels are great um a lot of people have tried to replicate their their success over the last while um as being like two underground rappers who basically got together and just propelled each other to mainstream success it's it's like an excellent uh story um, and the reasons why they did it are not just because they combined forces and subsequently fan bases. The reason why they did it is because they lift each other up in completely like counterweight kind of processes or something like that. I'm probably not able to explain it as well as I should. Um, but they're just such a good story and they're such an awesome uh, duo and like their tracks are fucking dope. So uh yeah, I, I feel very white when I say their tracks are fucking dope, but like, it's the only way that I can think of it. Like, it just, their songs are fucking cool to listen to, and you feel great when you're like, when you're listening to, um, particularly like their heavy hitting tracks and stuff like that. So, like, fucking well done to them. This album was awesome, and uh, I would give it four RTJs out of four. Okay. This next record that I'm going to talk about is one that I have not spoken about before, but it is one that I listened to about seven or eight times this year. It is called Viewing by a band called Stay Inside. This is a complete left turn from the hip-hop stuff that we were just talking about. This is an emo record. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with emo music. Like I know I've referenced it a few times over the years, uh, talking about the likes of Brand New and Jimmy Eat World. Um, and bands like that 
but this album is very um it feels very true to the the very roots of emo music um it doesn't have the kind of let's say like pop punk cred that a lot of emo music nowadays tends to have uh this is like this is this sounds like an album from a band that has really perfected their craft and what's crazy is that this is their debut album and um, but it's essentially like a paranoid ugly and deranged release that also has an awful lot of swagger and self-awareness and just a mission statement that has been achieved to like absolute perfection um it's really really dark i like i cannot stress that enough i love how well this album retains its atmosphere of just foreboding and dread um and while shifting in between different singers and still managing to pull that off uh this album is like somebody put their hands inside of your head in like your darkest moments and translated those thoughts into music and the opener of the track gives you a taste of the type of nihilism that's like funneled through the album uh with lyrics like but i dug too deep i ripped up flowers when i wanted weeds and the picture is weak everything's a copy that i'm copying like it's just so gray and like lit by flickering artificial lights and just i don't know it's so it's brutal and dark and dreary but it's beautiful and it's perfectly executed and it's an extremely fitting album for the year 2020 by a band called stay inside like for fuck's sake if any of you have felt during the during the like several lockdowns that we've been through or during the self-isolation you may have imposed on yourself um this album i feel like it perfectly encapsulates what you were feeling and i don't think this album actually came out that long after all of the pandemic stuff i think this album may have been from may um or something like that so it's just it's a it's a really fucking powerful uh emo album i think and i i think if any of you have any interest in that kind of music like definitely give it a listen it's so brooding and uh and powerful and i just can't recommend it enough some people don't like uh, emo music because the they think that sometimes the lyrics can sound too whiny um or sorry the vocals sound too whiny and the singers sound too nasal and stuff like that i don't feel like this album suffers from that i feel like this album is just an extremely honest take from uh like a voice of depression or something like that um so the next album that i want to talk about is uh survival horror or post-human survival horror um and this is the newest release from bring me the horizon now bring me the horizon announced like last year in an interview that they were going to be breaking away from the traditional uh album release formula uh they weren't going to do like okay we've got an album coming out here's the uh here's a subsequent tour here's the pr like all of those things the television appearances they wanted to do a collection of eps instead um all of which center around a different team uh which is kind of like a groundbreaking project for a mainstream band to be undertaking i can't think of any kind of a precedent for a band as big as bring me the horizon like if people don't understand how big they are like they're one of the biggest bands in the world um a was really skeptical about this i thought a they're not going to do that um and last year they released an album called ammo and then when that 
cycle had finished they released a follow-up called like music to fucking listen to dance to play games to meditate to whatever the fuck we'll just call it music um and the ep was so clearly just a leftover collection of things left on the cutting floor from the ammo recordings um like several of the tracks follow the same rhythm structures as that one did and it felt lazy um kind of pretentious like a very self-important kind of a thing and i really wasn't into it uh so when i heard they were thinking about doing more eps what i honestly thought was that they just wanted to be more lazy with their releases so that they could make more music with less effort um but this first edition of the uh of the post-human releases called survival horror is so fucking good it is such a fun little record it's nine tracks i don't know is it an album they're calling it an ep but like if you just give this one a listen you'll understand this has the punch of an album this is like you know drake calling uh if you're reading this it's too late a mixtape instead of an album when we all fucking know it's an album um so this is just like i don't know like I'm I'm so embarrassed to be a fan of Bring Me the Horizon. Like they're they're such a kind of a like they just feel to me like they're a metal band for teenage girls who don't really know what metal music is. But um and like their lyrics also are really not that great. But this record has themes that are very apt for the modern era, particularly well, like especially the last year, but also even the last few years, I would say, in terms of um political discourse online and things like that um but they really do have their finger on the pulse of the the current like the twitter or the tumblr generational nihilism and that kind of everybody is depressed all the time kind of mentality and in spite of the darker themes that you find on this album i still think it retains this really uplifting and fun kind of experimental sound it's like it's like they've accepted that they're trapped in hell but they're determined to enjoy it while they're there. And I feel like uh, Bring Me The Horizon, they've been a band who've always walked this tightrope between like fucking cringe-topia, melodrama, uh, self-indulgence, and edginess. But they always release really stylish, slick music that's really accessible to the masses and it bites hard enough to feel like it belongs to you. And there are also a few aspects of this release that sound incredibly Linkin Parky, and the band also have the self-awareness to acknowledge that by titling one of the tracks Itch for the Cure, which is obviously a reference to a track from Linkin Park's debut album, Hybrid Theory, with Cure for the Itch on there. Um, Ludens was the first song that the world heard from this release, and that's a song that was on the um, that fucking Hideo Kojima game. What's it called? Uh, Death Stranding. And Ludens is a really fucking good song. Like, if you listen to that song, you can hear a metal band that have the kind of um, the swagger and the confidence to just try something completely different. And that reminds me of, like, Linkin Park circa 2010, which is, like, my favorite Linkin Park era. So I'm really, really happy with this kind of music. I really enjoy it. I think that it's great. I think Kingslayer from this release, which is a, a collab with Baby Metal, is such a fucking great song. Like, it's so fun to listen to. Um, it's like they're they're making a joke about the kind of music they have, but like they're also in on the joke, and we're all in on the joke, and we all enjoy it, and it's a fucking great song as well. Um, there's also a couple of lines on, uh, what's the name of the um, the one that was like the lead single to the record, 
I actually can't, I straight up cannot remember the fucking name of it now. And that's going to really annoy me because I want to make this point. So I'm really quickly just going to Google this. Oops. Woman survival horror. Um, Parasite Eve has this, this really uh, strong. So like one of the things on it is that it says, if the suspense doesn't kill you, something else will which is a reference to the original trailer for Resident Evil, the very first game. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that, but like I remember seeing that on TV and wanting that game. Um, but they also have this line in it where it says, really, we just need to fear something, only pretending to feel something. And I really feel like a lot of the Tumblr generation people who um, they cry out for a type of social justice that kind of already exists in the world, but they're too young to understand that or look at the world in that kind of way. I feel like that lyric really taps into something. And it's, it's echoed again later on where he says, really, we just want to scream something, only pretend to believe something, which is a great line about how some people on the internet will attach their anger to a more righteous cause just as a means to vent and i really do feel like those lyrics are there on purpose um i think that that's the exact type of mentality that ali sykes is talking about when he sings those lyrics and i think it's like a, i think it's a completely fair kind of um train of thought to put into a song especially one that's called survival horror that feels relevant to 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 modernity so um yeah i just think that that's pretty cool um yeah okay sorry let's quickly just checking something i could just edit that pause out but i won't okay so that's the bring me the horizon record flying trudies um so the next album that i want to talk about is uh, another left turn, but I didn't organize these in any particular way. Uh, this one is called Letter to You, and this is by Boss Bruce Springsteen. This is his 20th album release, his 20th studio album. And this album is honestly unbelievable. And if you listen, excuse me, if you listen to it just once, you will probably feel like that's a huge exaggeration and that I and that I'm just such a huge fan that I'm unable to find any flaws in him and all of that stuff. Um, I think it took me five listens to come to that conclusion, but I'm very confident when I say it. It's very well put together, um, crafted with a whole lot of care, but at the same time, it has that rock and roll freight train running down the line, Johnny Catch kind of a feel, uh, especially with the title track. Um, Janie Needs a Shooter, uh, Burning Train, and If I Was the Priest, it flows perfectly, like a Springsteen album of old, and seems to like really perfectly combine his old school songwriting style with the newer stripped back Bruce, and fuses them both into this lived in live experience that we've come to ex expect from the E Street Band. Um, it's both, um, what's the word, like, fantastical in the way that Bruce Springsteen's music can be fantastical relatable in the way that Springsteen's music can be relatable um it's that kind of like descriptive uh, lyricism that Bruce Springsteen really specializes in and I've given this several listens and honestly cannot say there's a single filler track on here which is like such a massive claim to make about a 71 year old musician on his 20th fucking studio album but I promise you, this album is so good. Like, I don't know. If you've listened to Born to Run and Born in the USA and Nebraska and all those albums, you absolutely have to give this one a go. 
Um, it opens up with four really strong tracks and a couple of album highlights. And I've seen people speak of the middle section of the album as a lull or like the only like dim moment in it, but I really can't hear it. I think Last Man Standing is a lovely ode to his former bandmates. I think House of a Thousand Guitars is a really strong reminder of the importance of live music. I think thematically there's lots of spiritual references dotted throughout the album. And as much as it's reflective and deals with loss, there's like optimism in every religious symbol. Uh, where Bruce conflates God and music and the power of prayer in particular, uh, just the idea of a concert being akin to a sermon. Um, this idea also resurfaces throughout the other tracks in different ways. Um, there are vaguely political sentiments expressed on it. Um, for example, in House of a Thousand Guitars, he says the criminal clown has stolen the throne. I think the next line is he steals what he can never own. And while it's not like the most blatant anti-Trumpian lyric, it's pretty obvious what he's talking about to, to anyone who knows his opinions on the matter. Um, and the rest of the verse implies that protest music is a good counter to political propaganda. Um, the track that immediately follows that one, Rainmaker, is another one with political undertones. But Springsteen walks this line really, really well. He talks about a rainmaker who promised to bring the rain for parched crops. But he does it in a way that's sympathetic towards the people who've fallen for the scam of the Rainmaker. Like, it's not a divisive track at all. It's, in fact, touching. It's empathic. It's understanding. Um, and in recent years, like over the last, let's say, 10 years, I really haven't been a huge fan of Bruce's tendency to just resurrect uh, his, like, older tracks and try and nail down a definitive studio version of them. Uh, I think a good example of this is, like, The Land of Hopes and Dreams on Wrecking Ball and The Ghost of Tom Joad on High Hopes and other tracks like those. But on this album, he definitely figured out how to do that. He revisited lots of older songs and fused them together with the newer tracks on the album. And it just flows perfectly. Like it just lends itself to being this perfect Springsteenian release. And um, I really just can't stress how much I enjoyed it. And I really hope that if you listened to it and you weren't really into it all that much, that you'll give it a second chance because like, I cannot stress to you how much I believe it's worth it. Uh, I, I feel like once I, once I had properly got into the album, that every listen afterwards just like made me really happy. So <laughs> I just, I, I just, you should definitely listen to it. Um, so the next album that I'm going to talk about is called Misanthropocene. I think that's how you pronounce it. I fucking hope it's how you pronounce it. It's by Grimes. Um, and like the Anthropocene period is seen as this period um, of like history, uh, the like the timeline of history that's dominated by humans. I believe that's what it is. And then obviously misanthropy is um what's known as hatred of all humans so i think miss anthropocene is like like she's it's really hard for me to explain this because to be honest with you the meaning that she's put forth on this album actually doesn't really register with me when i listen to it it's supposed to be an album about climate change and the like the impact of, of climate change and like our inevitable destruction if it goes untreated but that doesn't really ever enter the forefront of your mind when you listen to this album. And in the title, I just feel like it's a clever title. But she is really uncompromising in her artistic vision, and it really shines through on the album. The sounds are scattered. It's all over the place. 
but it's pieced together so perfectly that you don't even have time to find any flaws in it. Uh, it's the complete opposite of notes on a conditional form. Like it's how you can make a crazy out there album, but still have it work perfectly and flow perfectly. Um, what I was saying about the, the, the message about climate change, not really registering with me. It's not that it completely misses the mark or anything. It's more that it's just not clear what way you're supposed to interpret some of these tracks. Um, so Heavy I Fell Through the Earth is a really nice album opener and it sets the tone for what's going to come. Like There are three songs here, Delete Forever, Violence, and You'll Miss Me When I'm Not Around, which I think tie the whole album together really well and cement the album's place as a top tier one. Um, this was the first best album of the year. You know what I mean? It's the first one of those. It came out in January, early February, I think it came out. Um, but I knew the first time I listened to this that this was going to feature on most of the album of the year lists. And I think a lot of people have fallen out of favor with Grimes because she's dating Elon Musk and they named their kid that impossible thing to pronounce. But I kind of like I don't give a shit about that. I thought that Art Angels was an incredible album. And I think that this one is actually even better. Um, Delete Forever is such a lovely song and it's got this really light strumming in the intro. I don't know if it's a guitar or if it's a banjo or what the fuck it is, but it stands out as a real outlier. Um, and it's got this lovely hummed chorus that just kind of washes the track in this gloomy but also peaceful kind of glow. And apparently she wrote this song after the death of Lil Peep and it's mainly about opioid addiction. And I feel like that definitely shines through on this track. Like this track definitely makes sense to me. Um, the humming in the chorus just feels like what it would be like to be, to have that like opioid kind of buzz where you just feel at whole with yourself. Um, and like all your anxieties just disappear. And I, I think that that's just such a, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a great track. It's a great album. It was probably my favorite one overall of the year um, or at least it's like the record of the year that i think is the best maybe not necessarily my favorite but it's so good and i think that one of the main reasons why it's not like dominating the lists in the top five greatest albums of the year is because it came out so early and it's been such a long year but this album is really 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 good so up next, we are going to talk about another uh, band who I haven't really ever spoken about before. Uh, this is a band called Hum. They are a very like enigmatic type of band. Um, and they surprise released this album called Inlet. And someone has uploaded this album to YouTube in its entirety. And they have the genre listed as shoegaze, space rock, alternative metal. <laughs> I think... I don't know, that's just so perfect. If you don't know who Home are, they're like this enigmatic band from the 90s, or like, I think technically they actually formed in the in the late 80s. Um, they had a low-key seminal album in 1995 called You'd Prefer an Astronaut, which spawned their biggest hit. It's called Stars. Um, they played this on like the fucking, you know, the late, late talk shows in America and stuff like that. Um, they released an album in 1998 to follow up to You'd Prefer an Astronaut, 
and then they vanished completely off the face of the earth. And there had been rumors and reports that they were working on another album for years. But this one just dropped out of nowhere at the end of June, and it fucking blew me away. If you were to ask me to describe what it sounds like, it honestly sounds like the musical version of those mysterious monoliths that have appeared all over the world. It's like eight tracks of transcendental bliss akin to taking some body-numbing drug like the opioids I mentioned in the fucking Grimes review, uh, and then just drifting around your thoughts for nearly an hour. And it's like, sonically, it's like sludgy in parts and it's spacey in other parts. And overall, it's just extremely beautiful. And it sounds like it sounds like an album that was sent here in a rocket from another fucking dimension or something. It's it's nowhere close to the type of album I was even expecting from them. And it doesn't sound like their other albums either. Like, it doesn't really have a lead single. There's not really any hits you'd imagine getting any radio play on the alt stations. And it's... I don't know. It just it's almost hypnotic and enchanting how well it flows as a body of work. And you can also tell that they worked really hard on it, which is like really, really satisfying when you're listening to it. Um the lyrics in it are about as vague as you'd expect any album labeled space rock to be. You can definitely find traces of meaning in a lot of these songs. Like there's this thread of isolation that runs through it, and I think it's a combination of expressing the hardship of touring schedules and the toll they can take on your psyche like for example on the track desert rambler he says um halcyon days long wasted departing our shores and just the idea of wasting his youthful years chasing a dream that never quite came through and then the final stanza of that song has the lines you can't know the hours that kept me awake awake with the start and the instruments say I've come so far. A stag and doe. A stag and a doe and a surface here are being lost. Hope wasn't here, but it slept in the seeds of our own dust. Do you feel loved? And that kind of feels to me like a guy ruminating on the time that he spent away from his loved ones. Like, and then asking, like, do you feel loved? Um, but then the idea of time being wasted comes back into the album on Step Into You, which might actually be the only like single kind of sounding song on here. But he says, I am lost, chasing thoughts on a dying moon. I am over it. I'm a dried up wind blown cocoon. And there's something very forlorn and final about that imagery. Um, and if you think that that makes it a downer, like it's really not. The atmosphere of this album will definitely carry you through like an asteroid floating past the earth. like. Before you can, before you can feel super gloomy and down about it, you get to bask in the warm glow of the, the gorgeous riff that opens up the track Cloud City. It's so nice. Like, please just Google Home Cloud City and just listen to that intro. It's fucking amazing. And then the album closes with a track called Shapeshifter, which is a really fitting name because the track is neatly divided into two separate segments that segue flawlessly into each other. And the lyrics talk about shapeshifting. Um, a really cool uh, moment in this is that the album ends with the words reaching for you and finding your hand, which gives you this really wholesome feeling of being complete and like really nicely reconciles the darker parts of the album that came before. And I can't recommend this album enough. I recommended it to a few people on my stream and I, I, I felt like, like some people just weren't into it. And then I kept on going on about it and more people listened to it and said that it was really good. So um, 
I yeah, I just I can't recommend it enough. It's so fucking good. Please give it your time. I promise you, it's worth it. Um, so up next, I'm gonna talk about Folklore by Taylor Swift. I don't really have like I literally have not got a single note written down about this album. Um, it was another surprise release. I think we got like a day's notice before it came out, and we were told like Taylor Swift is dropping a new album tonight. And I'm always pretty hyped for Taylor Swift albums. I think that she's a very, um, what's the word? Like a very important figure in determining the, I don't know, like the meta of pop music pretty much. Like uh, from the the extremely like radio pop friendly 1989 to the more kind of like hip hop sound that you found in Reputation. Um, and then the kind of like really sweet um, sounds from uh, Lover. Um, it does feel like she always has like, she, she's just a key figure in determining popular sounds essentially. So this album was particularly different because usually a Taylor Swift album release means we get the lead single and then we get loads of interviews talking about who the potential guests on the album are, who the, uh, the subject of the title track is gonna be about, um what does the rest of the album sound like when is the world tour all of that stuff and the folklore is this completely uh stripped back like americana heartfelt really low-key um like piano rock kind of thing it bridges between folk music and indie music uh, there's obviously a strong indie influence on there when you've got the uh is it the desner brothers from the national and uh bonnie ver um it's just it just feels like a um and i don't want to say an extreme left turn because it isn't but it just it just feels like a huge shift in what anybody was expecting from from taylor swift record and it's so fucking good um the last great american dynasty is such a great song um i'm actually really annoyed that i don't have like the tracks written in front of me but there is a track that's like a the one that goes like, if I showed up at your party, whatever that one is called. That's a great song. Um, there's loads of great tracks on it, though. It flows seamlessly. Uh, it's over an hour long, but it absolutely doesn't feel like that. It feels like you're getting into your car and you're driving on some massive American highway, taking every exit into every small town along the way and getting lost in everybody's problems there. It's a really, really, really nice record. It, it reminds me of... Um, it reminds me of Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, right? But if if Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen is like a fucking rated R like movie set in the darkness, I would say that this is like the the Disney happy ending version that's set in the sunshine. And it's really, really, really good. Um and then she kind of fucked me up a little bit by releasing Everywhere, which is like the sister um cd to this one and i honestly have not had enough time to listen to evermore so i can't really remark on it in the same way i did about folklore um folklore has absolutely cemented its place as one of the albums of the year for me like no question i will definitely i'll be listening to that album in 10 years no doubt about it um evermore i've only given two spins to and so far i really like it um and it feels like it's probably as good as folklore but I just am not willing to put that on record because obviously the Midnight Hour is a huge platform and it has a huge say in 
you know, what the next big thing is going to be. And I don't want to just redefine pop music for the masses just yet because that's a bit too much pressure for me. So we'll just hold off on that for the time being. But just know that I think that uh, folklore is incredible and Evermore so far seems like it is probably also incredible. Um, so yeah, big up Taylor Swift. Great job. And this album is... I was gonna I was gonna say ten out of ten. I'm not gonna give it that. I'm not gonna give any of these albums any scores, but yes. We are gonna talk about a hero's death by Fontaine's DC. This album came out like again, I have no notes on this one, but um I feel like I should probably be able to talk about it quite confidently. Um this album came out just over a year after their debut album dog Roll, which was uh really well received among critics and fans um it helped them to just go on this amazing tour this relentless touring that they've done since basically 2017 onwards um and yeah it was it was just a huge critical success and it's kind of surprising to everybody like they played on jimmy fallon's show they're just this this irish post-punk band playing on jimmy fallon um yeah, I think their popularity surprised an awful lot of people. And Dog Roll is some kind of fusion between a bunch of different genres. And then it's recorded in like a one take live on the spot, feels very raw kind of a, a feeling. And I think a lot of people were expecting them to just release another track like that. Um, their non-album singles from the Dogrel era are all of the same kind of ilk. There's a lot of talking in them. Um, there's a lot of lyrics. Like they're just filled with lyrics. You know what I mean? Like more, they're more wordy than your typical song would be. Uh, they're very descriptive, and they're just of a certain style. Basically, they feel like very early Manchester type tracks, and. A Hero's Death is nothing like that. It doesn't sound raw. It doesn't sound like it was all recorded in one take. It sounds polished and refined. The tracks are heavier. Um, they have a lot more space to breathe. The music stands out an awful lot more. And there's a lot of repetition on this album. And the reason for that is that this album is... Um, it's not so much a social commentary as much as it's like a psychological commentary. Um, one of the main things that they want to communicate on this album is the echo chamber of modernity that people find themselves trapped in. It's everywhere. Um, it's online. It follows you home. It's in your WhatsApp groups, all of that stuff. Um, and what that results in is what's known in this album as a televised mind. And in a televised mind, it says a televised mind over and over. And it's like reminding you that um, it's it's simulating an echo chamber is what it's doing. And the the repetition at the end of what you call it, what you call it um, is like, I believe this is supposed to be like um, just people not knowing, but still talking anyway, like what you call it is a thing that you say I, I think i'm sure people say it in england as well like can you pass me the what you call it or like um yeah i'm going to the what you call it whatever um but yeah just the idea of repeating what you call it what you call it what you call it over and over 
um, to simulate somebody just speaking constantly and not knowing what they're speaking about because they're just regurgitating things that were fed to them inside their echo chamber is so fucking clever. And it's such a great track. I love the like tumbling guitars at the start of it. Um, just the way it sounded so pleasing, especially like just in terms of like the influences behind this album, there's so many different, um, different sounds here, just like there was on Dog Roll, except they're different influences this time, which is just extremely interesting to me. Um, I love the way Dog Roll is this kind of like, uh, rip roaring guns blazing take on, um, like modern day Dublin. And then A Hero's Death is like this really refined, calm, gloomy kind of um, uh, like oversight on just the psychology of the modern human. And they just do a really, really good job of, of conveying that. Like there's even a track called A Lucid Dream. Um, just the, the disconnect between... Um, reality and your kind of digital world or your alter ego or your like invented persona like it all shines true all the way throughout this album and it's fantastic and it's extremely well executed and i think that they surprised a lot of people um nobody was expecting them to make such a change from a formula that was quite clearly working and they made it very very clear with the opening track being i don't belong to like just the lines i don't belong to anyone i don't want to belong um which is basically just their rejection of this tag that they're this kind of band and they're going to make this kind of record and we're all going to love it and we're all going to go like sink some pints and shout along to it and they're like now we're going to do this like odd blend of of different like gloomy styles of music um, and it sounds great there's a lot more singing on this album i think there are there's a lot more being said on the album and there's so much growth on display from the band that like I feel really really excited by the fact that they were able to release this album so soon into their career um so soon after their first release it's just it feels like an absolutely amazing time to be a fan of this kind of music to have a band like this going around um if you go on to like the stereo gum or like AB have they actually been talking about an AV club? I'm not sure, but the people on Stereo Gum, for the most part, are pretty sour about this band. Like, people are, don't really understand what the hype is for. People think that there are other bands who should be propped up. I always see people saying that Ice Age are a much better post-rock band than Fontaine's DC. And I just, I have no fucking idea why people want to combine, or sorry, want to compare all of these bands. Like, they don't sound anything like each other. And they don't even seem to make the same kind of post-punk. They quite clearly don't have the same influences. I, I don't understand why this like level of naysaying has to seep into everything that has a bit of hype behind it. But anyway, that's probably irrelevant. One thing I'm really, really bad at, um, like A, being a music critic in general, I have no fucking idea what I'm talking about. I know nothing about music. I don't know why people even listen to this. But B, I always fucking have to mention the negative stuff and that's so, such a bad trait that i have but it's something that i've i've noticed is really prominent uh, if you go on music forums is that there's kind of this rejection of the hype of fontaine's dc and it feels like a lot of people are uh kind of too hipster to admit that they like them because that's how popular they got so quickly and it's just really funny to me because the band is so fucking good and like this album is a, is a really really great follow-up to the first 
they've done something that I honestly was not entirely sure that they were capable of doing because I, I wasn't sure that anyone was capable of following up uh, Doggrel and how perfect of a debut release it was. So yeah, this album is great. And if, if Doggrel wasn't for you because there was too much talking or you felt like the um, the the sound was too rough, there was too much distortion or like whatever, um, I think A Hero's Death is a much more polished uh, kind of a thing for you to get into. Even the title track, A Hero's Death, actually has um, like harmonies in it, which is uh, pretty awesome. So yeah, this, this is a great album. I'm just so pleased that like I get to be alive to witness albums like this coming out. And like I said, again, 2020 has been an amazing year. I think I have one album left to talk about. Let me just scroll through my list here. Um, have I talked about that? I talked about them in a weird order. That's not actually on my fucking list. But anyways, the last one is, uh, this is a band that I've talked about over and over and over and over. Um, it's Deftones. They are just this everlasting presence that gaze over my music taste like a century that finds a way to see its influence in everything else that I like. Um, I first got into Deftones in like my late 90s new metal bullshit when I needed angry music to skate to and they had a few tracks that shared similarities with the likes of you know Limp Bizkit and Mudvayne and all the rest of the snot-nosed shit kid rage rock um, but they always had something extra about them that set them apart um, like their appeal when I was younger was just a fusion of hip-hop and metal it was literally as simple as that but the reason why they always stayed fresh in my mind was because there was always something new to pull from even in their oldest material I spoke a lot about White Pony on a previous podcast uh, which is a record that really set them apart from the rest of the pack and it's one that like at the time I would listen to in between like Static X and Slipknot records, but now I'd be more inclined to listen to it in between like Massive Attack and Slow Dive records. Um, it's weird, like they don't subscribe to a genre, they are just Deftones, and 2020 was a massive year for Deftones. Um, they rounded off 2019 with this performance at their own festival called Dia de los Deftones, um, they announced a world tour with Gojira, which I actually have tickets for. I'm going to see them in June uh, if this bullshit is finished by then. Um, they were going to play Robert Smith's festival. Um, they marked the 20th anniversary of their era-defining album, White Pony. Um, we all knew in 2019 that they were working on another album. I think we were actually expecting it since like 2018. It was produced by Terry Date, and they had been in the studio with him like all the way back in 2018. Um, but yeah, it's called Ohms, and the title track was released as a single, and critics really fucking loved it. And the album itself is kind of everything you could possibly expect from a Deftones release. It's just got that little bit more that you couldn't possibly have expected from a Deftones release. It starts off with this track called Genesis, which is like a really fitting title here, uh, like the announcement, the birth of something. And there's just this like... So in Deftones, there's this really well-known push and pull dynamic in the band, and it factors into their songwriting. Um, and there's like so apparently there is a, a rift or a so-called rift between Chino, who's the lead singer, and then Steph Carpenter, who is the lead guitarist, and also believes that the earth is flat, but their beef has nothing to do with that. Um, but yeah, they apparently have major differences over which kind of music direction the band should take. And like they have completely different musical tastes, they have different influences and stuff like that. 
And if you trawl through any Deftones forum or subreddit long enough, you'll eventually see people picking sides and like inventing the arguments of their favorite band members and all this shit. Um, and Chino kind of addresses that in the lyrics to Genesis, saying that he rejects both sides of what he's being told and announcing that he's finally achieved balance, which is to say balance in the rift. Uh, it's called Genesis. It's track number one. It perfectly sets the table for the rest of the album. And I just wanted to explain that because I fucking watched Anthony Fantano review this record and somehow come away from it thinking that this was some sort of centrist political position that the band were announcing. It fucking drove me crazy that you could come to that conclusion and use it as a reason to dislike the thing. Anyway, <laughs> this album is incredible. It just, it does everything that we expect from Deftone, like this crazy hybrid musical style, like metal, alternative, shoe, stream. I even think that the drumming on it sounds jazzy sometimes. They just mesh these things together so well, and they're so confident when they do it. Um, it's it's crazy to me that that like that Deftones exist. Um, but like to me, they've always felt like something beyond music. Um, they're closer to like a feeling or an atmosphere that you can't really define or adequately explain to anyone else. But I swear to fucking god, it is worth your time. And there's also a track on this with seagulls. So like, if you're not into that, like, I really can't help you anymore. Um, also, I should probably mention that that wasn't their only release of the year. Um, I'll just mention this real quick before I wrap up here. But in the year 1999, Deftones were pretty famous. They had toured relentlessly in support of their 1997 album, Around the Fur. They were approaching that kind of superstar status that metal bands in the 90s were actually able to get with like extensive radio play on rock stations, Kerrang! and all of that stuff. Um, and back then, it wasn't uncommon for bands to release remix albums to accompany their main release. And I reckon this was probably just a way of really capitalizing on the unreal revenue that bands used to make from CDs back then. Like, if you think about it, Linkin Park made a release album for, I think, their first two albums. And Limp Bizkit made one called New Old Songs. Um, it was just a thing that they did back then because people bought CDs for like fucking 20 euros a pop. I remember I spent so much fucking money on CDs back then. But um, anyway, Deftones were in some club where DJ Shadow was playing and they all approached him at the end of his set and told him that they were writing an album called White Pony and that they were planning on making a remix album, calling it Black Stallion and that they wanted him to be on it. He didn't even know who they were. Uh, like the story goes that he thought they were a scam band or something, but he agreed to do it, assuming that he would never see them again and that they, they wouldn't be able to maintain their popularity and stuff. But in the year 2020, the whole thing finally happened and they released a remix version of White Pony called Black Stallion, just as the prophecy had foretold. Now, if you are on Spotify, um, this is called White Pony 20th Anniversary Edition, and it's from track like fucking 12 onwards is the Black Stallion bit. And um, I just want to say also, honestly, I do not fucking care about remix albums or alternate versions of songs that exist. And if it were literally any other band in the entire fucking world, I wouldn't give this the time of day. But because it's Deftones, I listened to it, and there are moments of brilliance on here that are really hard to deny it's got remixes from mike shinoda um, purity ring robert smith is on there fantagram are on there um dj shadow obviously is there but there's this remix 
to change in the House of Flies, it's done by tourists. And it's sublime. It's like a born slippy for the chill wave generation who grew up on new metal. It's so beautiful and such a creative reimagining of the original track, which is already about reinterpretation and change. And the whole thing is just so meta and I really, really love it. I recommend listening to this thing, even if you don't give a shit about this. I actually hope that you listen to every album that I mentioned and I would apologize for all the Deftones talk here. I know I'm sick to death of hearing me talk about Deftones. But I don't fucking care. Fuck off. It's my podcast. If you don't like it, go complain about it on the internet. Anyways, for those of you who listen, I used a slightly different microphone while I was recording this, so I hope that the sound is okay. And for those of you who disagree with me or whatever, like, please let me know, respectfully or otherwise. I'm actually interested in what you have to say. Um, I'm going to end this here. I don't think I've missed anything this time. Um... I'm still, like, amazed, um, <laughs> I don't know, proud? I, I don't believe in the concept of pride, okay? But I am extremely happy, like, extremely happy and validated and fulfilled and, and everything else by the fact that you all continue to listen to me after such a long time, um, after every one of you has, like, grown up and fucking after all of the like inconsistencies that I have plagued you with and all of the promises that I broke and just all of that stuff, uh, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, really fucking like, thank you all. I, I really, really, really appreciate um, everything that you've done for me. Like particularly those of you who dropped into the live stream and like supported me with subscriptions and donations and all of that stuff. I, I, I cannot thank you enough. But even those of you out there who haven't done that and still comment on the videos and, you know, like fucking still follow up with me on Twitter and ask me questions about what I think about stuff like it's it's really, really validating. Honestly, I don't know what kind of state I would be in if if like if like nobody kind of cared about me in that way or I don't know. But it's just it's amazing. And and I'm so thankful for it. And um, yeah, if, if you want like anything from me content wise. Please ask. I promise I will do my very best to try to try to do it. Um, all right. That's it. We're done. Um, I hope you all have a great 2021. Uh, I'm sorry for all of you who were not on board with the lockdown stuff in 2020. If this was a tough year for you, if you weren't able to adjust your lifestyle, um, I completely understand that. And, and I hope that things get better for you. Uh, for those of you who suffered like any kind of um economic restraints like if those of you were put out of work or um or put on the dole or whatever like i'm really sorry for you i hope that things get better and um i hope that next year i do another one of these releases and i talk about how my favorite albums were accompanied by supporting gigs that i went to because all of this covid bullshit was over um so yeah just be safe um be good you know stay in touch and you know peace and love happy new year i'll talk to you guys next year the season's upon us it's that time of year brandy and eggnog is plenty of share. 
There's lights on the trees and there's wreaths to be hung. There's mischief and mayhem and songs to be sung. There's bells and there's holly, the kids are gung-ho. True love finds a kiss beneath fresh mistletoe. Some families are messed up while others are fine. If you think yours is crazy, well, you should see mine. So are their sons. My nephew's a horrible, wise little twit. He once gave me a nice gift wrap box full of shit. He likes to pelt carolers with icy snowballs. I'd like to take them out back and deck more than the halls. With family like this, I would have to confess I'd be better off lonely, distraught, and depressed. The season's upon us since that time of year. Brandy and eggnog, there's plenty of share. There's lights on the trees and there's a wreath to be hung. There's mischief and mayhem and songs to be sung. They call this Christmas where I'm from. My mom likes to cook, push our buttons and parade. My brother just brought home another big broad. The eyes roll and whispers come loud from the kitchen. I'd come home more often if they'd only quit bitching. Dad, on the other hand's a selfish old sod. Drinks whiskey alone with my miserable dog. Who won't run or fetch? Harry couldn't care less. He defiled my teddy bear and left me the mess. The season's upon us, it's that time of year. Brandy and eggnog, there's plenty at share. There's lights on the trees and there's a wreath to be hung. There's mischief and mayhem and songs to be sung. They call this Christmas where I'm from. Where I'm from